Um, let's get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and I want to thank Mark and Kyle and Dan who preached last weekend while I was up with my family doing my mother's celebration of life service who passed away back in uh, February. It was a wonderful service honoring a very godly mom. And um, it's good to be back with you though. I always feel like the times that I'm not here feel like weeks and weeks and weeks. So it's good to be back. So let's stand together. And if you're online watching this, I'm going to encourage you to stand as well. Even though you're in the privacy of your own home, likely, or maybe you're watching it in your, uh, in your office cubicle. That would be so cool. Maybe not honoring to the Lord. You ought to be working. But however, that would be pretty awesome. So let's read, if we could, Acts chapter 16. And we're going to pick up where Mark, Dan, and Kyle left off last week, verse 25. So I'm going to read a portion of this, and then we'll um, go ahead and sit down. Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now I'm going to take you a little bit further previous to this. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to make a comment on the section we didn't read, and while I do, make your way over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let's all be in our Bibles, so let's everybody have your Bible open. If you don't have one, there should be one right in the back of that pew. Uh, if you're watching this from home, please have your Bible open. We are a people of God's Word, and there are so many particular points that I want to show you from the passage that we just read. So Matthew 24 is where we're going, but let me make a comment. The part that I did not read, verses 35 through 40, we're not going to talk about, but what we see in there is Paul and Silas 
refusing to leave the prison even when the magistrates said they could. And the reason that they didn't is because a church had just been birthed. It's the church at Philippi, the letter of Philippians is to this church. And that brand new church was in a very precarious situation, surrounded by a city that had just shown its true colors by persecuting, beating, and jailing Paul and Silas illegally. And what Paul and Silas were doing was sending a message very humbly, but a firm, clear message to the Philippian leaders that that is something that we will not tolerate being trampled on illegally. He sent a message to protect the young church. But we're going to look at what happened to Paul and Silas specifically, but we're going to enlarge the context, including us as well. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is warning of what's going to happen when persecution comes to the church. He says in verse 10, many will fall away. Now look at me for just a moment, and we're going to get picking up steam in just a moment, but I want you to look at me. This is perhaps the most sober thing I'm going to tell you, or at least one of a couple sober things I'm going to tell you. Friends, I want you to hear something from my heart to yours. Statistically, some of you, if and when persecution begins coming to America, some of you will fall away. You need to be sobered by that. Many, Jesus said, I just used the word some, I'm being kind. Jesus said, many will fall away. Who was he talking to about? Those who were following him, those who claimed that he was their Lord and Savior. Many will fall away, verse 10, and betray one another and hate one another. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, verse 14, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Will you endure to the end, even in great persecution? Many will fall away. That's a terrifying thought to me. Not only that will I endure persecution if and when it comes, but the people that I pastor, that I preach to every week, will you endure persecution? Statistically, I'm going to say it again, some of you will not, and you will not be saved. Our Lord's words, not mine. So let that sober us as we now look at Acts chapter 16 with great concern over our own endurance, our own lives, if and when persecution comes. I've never seen one of these, but I have heard and I have read that wildfires can travel at an astonishing 14 miles per hour. I know for a fact that's faster than I can run. And they destroy wildfires, do everything in their path. 
As a little kid, the fire scene, if you've seen the movie Bambi, that terrified me. I've always remembered that. That was traumatizing enough. So as we continue in this Acts series called To the End of the Earth, we're going to see persecution come roaring like a wildfire toward the church. But it's going to have a very unexpected result. Nineteen centuries ago, 1900 years ago, Tertullian, who was an early church father, said that the church was like a mowed field. Get that in your image, a mowed field. Think of a, a farmer mowing down the hay, and it's lying there on its side. That was what the church looked like. Here's why. Because persecution was so great, Christian after Christian was being put to death. But he said, Tertullian did, the more frequently the church is cut, the more it grows. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christianity then, 1900 years ago, in Rome was illegal. And Rome tried to stamp it out through the hostility of persecution. Now listen to this. Sunday afternoons were not spent 1900 years ago watching the NFL. It was spent with hundreds and thousands of people going to the Colosseums where Christians were being fed to the lions for sport. They were beheaded. They were soaked in tar, pitch, and then impaled on stakes and lit on fire to light courtyards for Roman parties at night. This is truth. For 300 years, Rome tried to stamp out Christianity, and I believe we are currently beginning to experience the ramping up of the same thing. Friends, I don't know if you agree with me, but I am telling you that persecution is ramping up. It is coming into this country, and it will come like a wildfire. And do not for a moment, friends, listen, do not for a moment think, well, I will run, I will prepare, I will get ready when I see the flames. It will be too late. You will not outrun the wildfire persecution. And what we're going to see throughout this passage is that our greatest witness will often be in our darkest moments. Now, let me remind you of one thing that I told you very early on in this series, many months ago. The word witness is the word that we translate to martyr. Our greatest witness will often be in our darkest moments. You and I, we live in America. We think, well, it's when we get fired from work. Or it's when we lose our job, we get laid off. It's when we can't make our bills. It's when... We have a conflict within our marriage. No, no. That's not persecution. When persecution roars into this country, your greatest witness will be in that darkest moment. Are you ready for it? 
Perhaps Acts 16, verse 25, gives us the detail that we need to hear. Now, look what it says in verse 25. Luke writes this for a reason, about midnight. It underscores the darkest, the darkness of the moment that Paul and Silas were, were facing. And yet, they were the brightest of lights. They had been beaten bloody, not by whips, but rods. After they were stripped naked, the magistrates took their clothes from them. They were meant to be humiliated. They were meant to feel the full pain of the rods. The Jewish people scourged their victims, always 40 lashes minus one. That's how they described it. But the Romans didn't necessarily use scourging all the time. Sometimes they used the rods, and they did not have a numerical limit. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is one of the three times. This is the first, presumably, of the three times. What's a rod? Well, in your mind, think of a cane. It's about the diameter of a cane. It's made from birch wood. And in verse 22, look what it says. It uses the plural rods. That means there's more than one soldier beating them. And it's, they're being beaten not just on their backs, which is where scourging would go. It would go your backs and your, around your abdominal region, your sides. Rod beating happened over your entire body. And then they were handed over to the jailer told to keep them safely. That doesn't mean keep them safe. It means securely. And so he did. He fastened their feet in the stocks. He didn't have to do that. That was at his own discretion. He was a cruel jailer. He had no compassion for them. He took them into the most inner part of the prison, the most secure part of the prison, as if that was not enough. He put their feet in the stocks, which forces a victim's body into a contorted position. Eventually, and not long, you're going to, be start, you're going to start experiencing excruciating cramps over your entire body. And if you've ever had cramps, and you know sometimes you've got to jump out of bed to get the cramp out of your foot or your leg, there is no way to get the cramp out. You can't move your body. It is horribly painful. Now let's look at the jailer for a little bit, because this is really going to center a lot on the jailer. Phil Philippi, this is the city, the town where this happened, was a Roman colonial town. Look at verse 12, chapter 16. If I were you, I would underline that. And you want to probably make a note out there because colonial towns were populated with former Roman soldiers, former legionnaires. They were sent to these towns as a reward for their service. These towns were outposts. They were to hold Roman territory. And these towns had special political status. Whoever was resettled there, if you voluntarily went there, you were exempt from paying taxes. You were given full land rights, ownership rights. You were rewarded for your loyalty and your dedication to Rome. So to go to one of these colonial towns, it was a special reward for someone who had served in the Roman army faithfully. 
So almost certainly this jailer was a former legionnaire. So now get this in your mind. We're looking at a jailer who has committed and seen the worst of atrocities. He's now in this city. He is the head jailer. He's an experienced soldier, and his life is about to change. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Persecution, friends, is pressure. Now, I want you to understand this. This is actually one of the key things I want you to take away from this message. Persecution is pressure. Think in your mind a tube of toothpaste. You pop the lid or take the cap off, and when you squeeze that toothpaste, you exert pressure. What was in it starts to come out of it. Persecution is a pressure, and that pressure squeezes our hearts, and it brings to the surface, it brings out of our lives what was always in your heart, and what lived in the hearts of Paul and Silas was faith. Persecution brought it from the invisible to the visible. In fact, George Mueller once said, trials are food for faith to feed on. Trials are food for faith to feed on. Now, just think about that for a moment. You're on your way to work. You've got a very important appointment, a very important meeting, and there's a traffic jam. What starts to come out of your life? What comes out of your heart in that moment? Or you hear something that is not favorable from your doctor after your yearly examination. What begins to come out of your heart? What begins to come out of your life? What are the words that you begin to say? What are the thoughts you begin to think? What are the actions that you begin to live out? You see, pressure brings from the invisible out to the visible for you to see what was in your heart the whole time. That's where God is looking. And look what came to the surface of Paul and Silas. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And the word singing here, you might want to underline it, put it in your margin. It's a word that means celebration and praise. This just isn't, they're not singing a dirge. This is not the psalmist that says in And uh, for the exiles in Babylon that we hung up our harps, we could not sing. We hung them up in the poplar trees. They're singing. They're celebrating. They've been beaten with birch wood rods. They've been stripped naked, humiliated, and their rights as Roman citizens were trampled. We don't like that in America. Anyone can sing when they get out of prison. Not everyone can sing when they are in prison. Instead of cursing those who wronged them, they were blessing God. Now think about this. Look at what squeezing persecution is squeezing. Look what's coming out of their hearts. Is this what would come out of your heart? Is this what would come out of my heart? Listen, persecution's coming. And when it begins to squeeze your life in terror... What's going to come out of you? You don't wait to prepare then until that moment. You prepare now. This sermon is meant to begin helping us or furthering that preparation. Now think for a moment on these questions. When someone mistreats you, 
What comes out of your mouth? I think most of you, if not all of you, and I'm not sure about our online audience, but most would claim that you're a Christian. But when you feel like you're mistreated by your spouse, by your children, by your neighbor, by your coworker, by somebody, what comes out of your mouth? What mental fantasies get stuck on repeat when you suffer unfairly from other people? Where do you go in your idle times mentally in that moment? What deep, unspoken attitudes come to the surface about God when you suffer? God, do you not care? God, are you powerless? God, are you not just? All of that is pressure, and it's squeezing your heart like a tube of toothpaste, and it is coming out of your life. And God is telling you in that moment, whether it is good or whether it is bad, do you see what I've seen all along? That's what I see in your heart. And now I've given you the opportunity to see it. What are you going to do with it? If good comes out, you return to God praise, like Paul and Silas. If bad and evil comes out, you appeal to God in repentance. You depend on his grace to help you even more. You see, they literally, Paul and Silas, they literally had a captive attitude, the pri- or audience rather. The prisoners were listening to them. I mean, where are they going to go? I mean, don't you do this? If you don't, you should. This is so fun. Next time you're on a plane and there's some stranger next to you, where are they going to go? Start sharing the gospel with them. Find a way to witness. Find a way to be a witness. They're your captive audience. Do it not obnoxiously. Do it graciously. Do it carefully. But be brave. Be bold. There are so many people that get saved because a Christian shares the good news on a plane. Their faith, Paul and Silas, and Jesus was their anchor, and it was expressed in prayers and song. Friends, your greatest witness will often be in your darkest moments. But the jailer, all right, the jailer, watch his reaction to his darkest moment. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Philippi was known. It was a town known for earthquakes. It happened all the time. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. Earthquakes don't unlock stocks. This one is God's earthquake. This is a precision strike. It opens the prison doors. It drops the stocks from their ankles. And seeing what happened, this inrushing, hardened, legionnaire, former legionnaire, hardened soldier who is now a jailer was about to fall on his sword. Why? Because the penalty for any Roman soldier who loses their prisoner was death. And it would be the most humiliating death. In fact, we're going to see that later in Acts 
We're going to see a ship that's bearing prisoners. Paul is on that ship, and it's about to sink in a storm. And as the ship was going down, don't you remember? The soldiers plotted to kill all the prisoners to keep them from escaping because if they made it to land, the soldiers, without their prisoners, their life wasn't going to last very long. So knowing this, the jailer pulls out his sword. He's about to fall on his sword, thrust it through his heart, and Paul shouts for him to stop, demonstrating the merciful love of God to a man who did not deserve it, who had treated them severely and unfairly, greater than their own freedom, was their love for this jailer because he is the true prisoner. Do you not know that? Now, friends, listen. Get this down in your heart and begin to believe it. If and when persecution comes, and some of us are put into prison, you're free. There is no circumstance that could put you in bondage. Even in prison, you are freer than every unsaved person outside of it. Your bonds, your fetters have been dropped. Christ has led you to freedom. Now, I want you to begin letting this truth really settle into your heart. If you live on mission as a witness for Jesus, you will experience persecution. Listen, if you want to avoid persecution, it's super simple. Just simply don't be a witness for Jesus. It's an awful way to live. You're not going to get any rewards. Jesus doesn't, see, doesn't look very highly at you, but it will get you out of persecution. But if you want to follow Jesus, and if you want to follow where we're going as we multiply worshipers and disciples and churches by simplifying, shifting, and spreading, then you're going to have to live on witness. You're not going to be comfortable in this church if you're not living as a witness of Jesus. We mean to make it not comfortable for you. We want you to live radically and to live your life for Christ. And if you do, you're going to experience persecution. And it may be you lose friends. It may be that you'll lose a job. It may be you'll lose your home or your property or your life or your freedom. And that, honestly, for an American might be the hardest one ever. Yet, Christian, you are the one who is free. Your persecutors are imprisoned in sin. Their freedom, not your own, is your priority. And that priority is to be a witness to them. And we begin to practice it now with little mistreatments. Think back this week. Did you get mistreated? Was somebody short with you? Did someone blame you for something you did not do? I mean, just look back this week. You're likely going to find little mistreatments. How do you handle the little ones begins to train your spiritual muscles for the big ones that are surely coming. Your greatest witness will often be in your darkest moment. Well, there's something I haven't told you yet about the people at Philippi and all, basically, all over the Roman Empire, particularly in Asia Minor, particularly in this region as well. Earthquakes were seen as a judgment of the gods. 
That was so woven into their minds, into their theology. The average person that lived in the Roman Empire, when an earthquake would come, they saw it directly as sent to them by the hand of some god. And it inspired great fear in the people. The power of Paul and Silas's witness dropped the terrified jailer to his knees with the greatest question that anyone can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Friends, there is no greater question than that. Hunger for people to ask you this. Pray that your unsaved family and friends and neighbors will ask you this so that you can answer it. What must I do to be saved? Well, here's where the liberal scholarship comes in. They say, well, the jailer was asking, how do I be saved from the penalty of losing a prisoner? Well, obviously that cannot be the case because he just confirmed when they brought lights in that all the prisoners were still there. So he's not worried about his physical life that he would be killed by the Roman authorities. That's not the problem. What must I do to be saved is clear. Now, let me tell you what prompted this, undoubtedly. Well, let's say that uh, some of us tomorrow, I hope none of us do, we break the law in a very terrible way and you get taken to prison. You get booked into jail. And in that booking, they get all kinds of information. And in that booking, it is written down, it is recorded what it is that your infraction was, what it is that your offense was. All of that was done. They were very organized in their penal system in Rome. All of that was done. The jailer booked them in. He knew all about what Paul and Silas had done. He knew all about this flash mob that beat them. He knew all about Lydia, I'm sure. He definitely knew about the demon-possessed fortune-telling girl that was saved, that the demon was pushed out of her. He would have learned all about these things because that girl kept shouting. Look at verse 17, chapter 16. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. There's no way in that small city that the jailer did not hear about this. Now the jailer pleads to know how he can be saved. And Paul gives the best and the only correct answer to that question. And here it is. And this is what you must say as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I don't mean to say this in a derogatory way, but this is not the Romans' road. And again, I don't mean to be disparaging, but he didn't hand them a track. And that's fine. Give, them, give people a track. You can talk to them about Romans' road, but it's not necessary. It, you can do that. You simply... Be a witness. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For anyone who wants to be saved, look what he says, including every member of his household. If every member believes, every member will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your entire household. All must believe. Each must believe. 
They're singing at midnight. They're praying in the midst of this prison. That did not save the jailer. Listen, that was the witness to the jailer. What saves a person is clearly and consistently the proclamation of the gospel. You've got to speak it. You've got to pronounce it. You've got to give it verbally. Your good example won't save people. It draws people to Christ, but it will not save anybody. You must share the gospel. And proclaiming that the good news of salvation is near, it is available to any and all who believe. Any and all who believe is really what is in view in this event. For a Jewish man, if you were a Jewish person, here's your prayer, Jewish men only. Here's your prayer every single morning. They were taught this prayer. It was a common rabbinical prayer taught to every Jewish man. They prayed in the morning, thank you God for not making me a Gentile or a woman or a slave. Acts 16, we see salvation come to a woman in Lydia, a slave in the fortune-telling demon-possessed girl, and a Gentile in this Roman jailer. Do you not see what God is doing? There's a bigger story that's enshrouding the jailer's salvation. The bigger story is salvation will come to any and all who believe. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The love of Jesus knows no boundaries. But, and now we're at the meat of this message. What does it truly mean to believe in the Lord Jesus. If you do not begin to understand this, your witness will be powerless. And I'm going to explain it to you, and it's very clear, and it's very simple. To believe is three things. Here's the first. It is to have some understanding of the message of the gospel. Listen, somebody doesn't need to be a theologian. They don't have to have some profound or educated level of understanding. Even a child can understand the gospel. I have led eight-year-old boys and little girls to Jesus for salvation. Even a child can understand it. It's not complicated unless we make it complicated. And if we make the gospel complicated, then we're distorting it. It is meant to be clear. It is meant to be understandable. So if you're going to believe, you must have some understanding. Now, I don't want to make the pastoral error of assuming everybody that is hearing this message is truly a believer. It is so easy, friends. Very simple. The Bible warns over and over, many will be deceived in the end days. You can't be self-deceived. You can think you're a believer and not really be a believer. Well, first, it starts out. Do you have some understanding of the gospel message that Jesus Christ had to die for you and he willingly died for you? It was the greatest expression of God's love in the universe and that he died and he was buried and he was risen to life and being raised to life now he brings life to anyone who believes. It starts with an understanding of the gospel. But number two, a person who believes must agree to that message. Friends, I know unsaved people 
who have a, a basic understanding of the gospel, but they do not agree to it. They cannot be saved. You cannot be saved if you do not agree to what you now understand. There must be an agreement to the message, believing it to be true. You must believe it is true. Do you not know that James says, even the demons believe in one God and shudder. Demons are not saved, but yet the same Greek word believes is there as it is here. They've got the first one. They've got an understanding of the gospel message, but they don't have the other two. They do not agree to it. And they certainly don't get to the third one. And the third component of what it means to have gospel saving faith or believe is that you must commit your life to the message of the gospel. You see, you've got to have a basic understanding. You've got to have an agreement. But you've got to commit your life to it. You cannot say, Jesus, I want you to save me, but I don't want you to be my Lord. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to pick up my cross. I don't want to deny myself daily and follow you. That is not saving faith. You cannot believe and be saved with that kind of belief. But what is the message that a person must believe? Well, look at what Paul and Silas say. It's very clear. Believe in what? The Lord Jesus. You must understand, you must agree, you must commit to Jesus, who is both your Lord and Jesus is the word for God saves. It's basically the New Testament name for Joshua. Yahweh saves. You must believe in both your Lord and Savior. You've got to have an, an understanding of what Jesus came to do. You've got to have an agreement. I needed him to do that for me. And then you've got to have a commitment. I give you my life as my Lord and my Savior. I trust in the person and work of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. You see, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised from burial as evidence that he was indeed the Son of God. To believe in Jesus, to believe in him as a Savior, but not to commit to him as your Lord, it's not saving faith. And to believe that he is the King of kings, but he's not able to save me from my terrible sins, is not saving faith. Do you understand it? Do you agree with it? And will you commit your life to it. That is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. This cruel former legionnaire who exercised his cruelty by putting them into stocks when he did not have to is saved. When Paul and Silas said, to his question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Look at the evidence of it. He washed their wounds that very night. He took them out of jail to his own home and asked them to explain the same gospel message to his family. And he baptized them that night. You see, belief that leads to salvation will change your life. If there is no transformation, there was no belief. 
Because salvation, salvific belief always brings about a transformation in life. How can it not? You're given a new nature. You're given a new heart. Your sin nature is crucified in that moment of belief. The Spirit of God now lives in you. You are now sealed. And now the blessings that have been shuttered are now opened through the blood of Christ into your life. How can there not be a change? If there's not a change, you really need to look that there was not belief. Now, friends, Christians, if someone were to ask you, if someone was to ask you, what must I do to be saved? Can you not simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus? It's not your articulatory ability. It's not your theological mind. It's the power of the living word of God. That's what saves people. It's not whether you present it right or not. It's the spirit of God using you as a witness to open blind eyes and save them. You see, it's not until afterwards, verse 32, that they're going to explain the gospel further. But he's already saved. He's already been transformed. His life's already changed. But the answer to the greatest question that can ever be asked is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Commit your life to the one whom you believe is your Savior and God, trusting that he has forgiven you your sins and will give you eternal life. Gone was the man of cruelty. In came a man of mercy. Gone was a man of selfish concern for only himself. In came a man of selfless love for others. One who was full of joy, who was rejoicing. Why? Because he and his family believed and they were saved. Can you not do that? That's what it means to be a witness. I'm going to tell you again, there's nowhere that I know of in the Bible that says we've got to go out witnessing. It's not a verb, it's a noun. We need to be a witness. And sometimes the greatest witness we will ever be will be in your darkest moment. As about midnight, you begin to sing and pray and your faith is expressed towards your God. Now, I'm going to close in about 30 seconds, but I want your undivided attention. doesn't matter how old or how young you are. You can hear this. Everyone listen, please. Persecution will come. Church, it's coming. Your greatest witness will be in your darkest moment. Now, in the little disruptions of your life, Begin exercising your spiritual muscles. Trust God. Rejoice always. And be a witness of Jesus even in your most difficult moments. One week from tomorrow, as I close, we're not coming to a building that weekend. We won't be having church Saturday evening a week from today. We won't be having church in the building a week from tomorrow. 
We're inviting all of you. Church, I am asking you to be there. We're inviting all of you. Get here early. Park where you can find parking. It's free until noon on Sundays. should be easy. And make your way to the center square of Easton, near where Pearly Bakers is, and then on the opposite corner where Crayola is. We're going to have two groups of people, and we're going to be singing, and we're going to be praying, and we're going to be encouraging each other. We're going to be praying exactly what Matthew said in our worship service this evening. We're going to be praying for our city, and we're going to be asking God to increase his people like a flock so that the waste cities will be filled with his people. Then they will know that he is God. Amen? It's not about making Cornerstone famous. It's about making God famous, bringing glory to him. Will you come next Sunday? Get involved and let's go. I'm talking to a lot of you already that have signed up. Pastor Kyle's making his way up here right now because I'm going to pray and hand it over to him. And he's going to tell you all more, a little bit more about Let's Go. But listen, every per- if this is your church, we truly expect to see you serving your community. Why would you be here if you don't want to do what we're doing? Get on board. Let's make a difference. Let's be witnesses for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this incredible story. Lord, the truth that our greatest witness will be in our darkest moments. Lord, that's always true. And even when things are dark about midnight, Lord, we could be found singing and praying. Why? Because we know who our God is. We have believed. We understand the gospel message. We agree to it. And we have committed our lives to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, would you use your people? Would you use this church that we would be witnesses And be able to answer, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Lord, let us live faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.